We're going to be in Hebrews 10 this morning, and specifically, uh, I want to be uh, looking at verses 19 through 25 with you. And yet, before we get to Hebrews 10, uh, 19 through 25, we actually need to back up a little bit, and we need to get a little bit of context, because Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 is going to give us three corporate responses to Christ's high priestly work, all right? And in the verses we're going to look at, we're going to see three responses to Christ's high priestly work. Um, but before we can get to the response, um, we need Hebrews 10 to remind us of that great high priestly work. <clears throat> I really, uh, we really enjoyed our opportunity to be in Pennsylvania with our families, and uh, someone asked if, it, if uh, the weather was unusual, and we said the weather was unusual. Uh, it was unusually warm. Uh, and so, in fact, we didn't even get snow until the last day uh, before we were supposed to leave. Um, but we did have one morning where uh, it had rained during, uh, during the night, and then it got below freezing, and we had to go somewhere in the morning. And uh, so I went out to the car, and I did what I thought I was going to have to do the whole trip, um, which is this whole routine you do when you live in cold weather or you live in snow, right? Um, when, anytime you get ready to go somewhere in your car, um, you, have to, you have to start leaving like 15 minutes before you're actually going to go anywhere, right? Uh, because first, uh, you have to go out and you have to start the car. Um, which, depending on how cold it is, can be a challenge anyway. But you start the car, and you, and you turn the defrost on as high as possible, right? And so I walked out in the morning, and, and the windshield of the car I was driving was just completely covered in ice. And it wasn't like that, that thin little ice. I mean, we're talking like big, chunky layer of ice. So I, so I turn the defrost on, and I go back in the house. And I wait for a while, and then I come, I come back out, and the defrost has started to make the ice at the bottom melt a little bit. Um, but then I reach into the back seat and get what all cars in Pennsylvania are equipped with, right? I get out the ice scraper. And I get out the ice scraper, and I begin to chip away at that ice, and, I, and I'm digging away at it. And, uh, and finally, I get it, I get it all done, um, and I can now see out the windshield. Then I can get the family and get in the car and we get ready to go, right? Um, if you were to decide you just wanted to get out and get on the road, and you just got up in the morning, you jumped in a car, um, you'd be in an extremely dangerous situation because you can't actually see out of the windshield. So you might say, I just want to get going. I don't want to mess around with all this preparation stuff. Can we just, can we just go? And the answer is no, not if you want to be able to see where you're going. Uh, and the reason I use that illustration is that I think we need to do the same thing um, when we get to the point of asking, what are we supposed to do that the Bible tells us to do? Because a lot of times we come to God's word and we want the rubber to meet the road. Just, like, tell me what I'm supposed to do, right? What's, what's the action point in, in this passage? What am I supposed to do? When in reality, there's a whole step of preparation that we should have before we get to having the rubber meet the road, and doing. And we need to do that in Hebrews. I think we need to do that all the time um, when, we, when we come in our Bibles. Um, and, and the reason I know we need to do this is, is the New Testament writers do this over and over and over again. Over and over again in our New Testaments, we are, we are told about the gospel that leads us to our action. We are told doctrine that we are then supposed to put in practice. And that pattern is all throughout our New Testaments. And so the, the doctrine part is not something that we can just skip over and say that preparation stage doesn't matter, right? Imagine with me that I went out and I got in my car um, and, and the windshield was all icy and I said, I'm just driving anyway. What's going to happen? What's going to happen is I'm not going to make it far before I crash, right? And yet in our Christian lives, a lot of times we do the same thing. We, we discover that we haven't made it very far before we, before we crash and we wonder why, uh, there are times when um, we just aren't doing the right thing. 
There's times when we feel guilty about what we aren't doing. There's times when we feel like we can't sustain the, the right behavior we're supposed to have. We, we might discover that we don't even have joy in doing what we're doing in our Christian lives. And, and I think a lot of the problem comes back to us not starting with a preparation of what, it, of what the gospel tells us. How does the gospel inform how I'm supposed to live right now? Because we want to skip to the how do I live right now. But, but what does the gospel say about how I live? And, and what, what doctrine is leading me to act the way I act? Right? And, and so we need to do that with, with Hebrews 10 this morning. If we wanted to get the full context, we, we would need to go back to the very beginning of the book. And, and really for Hebrews, we need to go all the way back to the Old Testament to get the full context but we don't actually have two years this morning. Um, And so we're just going to have to content ourselves with one chapter of context. Uh, And so before we get to verse number 19, we're going to walk through the first 18 verses of Hebrews 10. So if you're one of those people and and you notice um, that, you know, a sermon is halfway over before the preacher has gotten to his first point and you get nervous, I just want to tell you on the front end, don't be nervous um, because this is the preparation that we need to get to the action, right? This is the get the ice off the windshield and see clearly because what we need to see clearly from Hebrews 10, 1 through 18 is that we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. And, and the work that he has done is what leads us to respond. That's why I said the main point today is three corporate responses to Christ's high priestly work. All right? Let, let's see Christ in Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. What does it say? Well, it says in verse number 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The writer of Hebrews is going to remind us about a sacrificial system that isn't as good as Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews has been talking about um, many things that Jesus is better than, right? In Hebrews 1, we find out that Jesus is a better revelation from God. We also find out that Jesus is better than the angels. The writer of Hebrews will tell us that Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. And in this passage, we're going to find out that, that the sacrifice of Jesus and his work was better than the sacrifices of the law, all right? Jesus is better, and that's the point he's trying to make. And, and he makes it by saying that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, all right? Nothing wrong with the law. The law is good, and, and, it, and it did all the purposes God had for it, but it was just a shadow of the things that are to come. That, that word, um, something that that word shadow actually comes from a painting term of making a sketch or like a rough outline. Right? The law was just the sketch, the outside of the good things that were to come. But if you want to move from just a, a stick figure, black and white sketch, to see the full color of the good things that are to come, then you're going to have to look to Jesus, not to the law. So the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And because of that, it can never, notice the emphasis, it can never make perfect those who draw near. This is a reality of the Old Testament law. The law could never make anybody perfect. It says it could never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. He's probably talking specifically about the the one great day, the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice that was made on a yearly basis, the great Day of Atonement sacrifice. Those sacrifices could never make perfect those who drew near. How do we know that? Verse 2 says, Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Right? 
He's, he's just making a theological point, a point that we need to appreciate and we need to value this morning. That, that the sacrifices of the Old Testament could never make anyone perfect, and you know that because they had to do it over and over and over again. And in fact, verse 3 tells us that in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And that word reminder is really interesting because its only other use in the New Testament is of something else, something that we're going to celebrate this morning. You know what that word reminder is the only other time it's used in the New Testament? It's used of the Lord's Supper, the, the, re, the reminder. And yet, the Lord's Supper is not a reminder of our sins from the past year. In communion, we remember what? We remember the death and the victory of Jesus Christ. We remember his blood, and we remember his body that was broken for us, and yet we don't continue to sacrifice him. We don't continue to offer him. We just remember of the work that he had already done. And yet in the Old Testament system, every time they gave another sacrifice, they had to give another sacrifice because they had spent another year sinning. And so in that sacrifice was another reminder, yet you have, you have sinned again for a whole other year. And, and the sacrifice from last year, it's not, it's not able to make you perfect. You're, you're still not perfect. And so now we're going to have to offer another sacrifice. And so the Old Testament law could never, and its sacrifices, could never make perfect those who draw near. And, and even there, I just want to say a brief, a brief side word of, of application for you. Um, it, says, it says that those offerings, if, if, they, if they were able to make us perfect, then, then we would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But instead, there's a reminder of sins every year. And it's possible that you're one of those people this morning, uh, and you constantly have a consciousness of your sins. And, and even when you come to something like the Lord's Supper, instead of, instead of thinking about the, the body and, and the blood of Christ, what you think of most is your failure. What, what this passage reminds us of is, is that Jesus has dealt with all of your sin and with all of your failure permanently. You no longer have to bear the consciousness of your past sins. God does not continue to bring your sins up to you, nor do you need to continue bringing up your own sins to yourself. The sin that you have confessed and have forsaken, it's over and it's done. So if you're one of those people that's plagued by guilt and, and you look back and maybe it was a one particular sin you did when you, when you were younger or, or, or something and you just constantly have this consciousness of sins, then let this passage encourage you that Jesus Christ fully and totally does away with your sin, right? Because he's better than the law. The law could have never gotten rid of that sin, but Jesus can, all right? So he moves on in verse number four to say, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see how strong the writer of Hebrews is saying these things? That these sacrifices can never make people perfect. There's always a reminder of sins. They're offered every year, but those things are impossible to take away sins. That word take away is another one of those, one of those really picturesque words. It's the same word that's used uh, when Peter takes his sword uh, and he chops off the, the high priest's servant's ear. Remember that? It, that's the same word, take away. Right? There was a pretty drastic action in that taking away. And it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, verse 5 says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. When Jesus came, he came not to offer the sacrifice of bulls and of goats, but instead 
a body you have prepared for me. Jesus came as the better sacrifice. He says in verse 6, In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And so what Jesus did in verse 7 is he said, not in ritual, right? Jesus didn't come in ritual. What Jesus came, he says in verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And what Jesus did is what the Old Testament um, Jews never could. They they, They could never come with perfect obedience to the will of God. And constantly they were struggling um, with hearts that were not in their worship. Constantly they were offering sacrifices that God was rejecting because they weren't doing it from pure hearts. And what Jesus did is he said, I've come to do your will. I have come with perfect obedience. And what he does when he comes to do the will of God, verse 9 says, is that he does away with the first. He, he does away with the blood of bulls and goats and of the sacrifices and offering in order to establish the second, the, the will of God. And this is a revolutionary statement that the writer of Hebrews is writing, of course, to, to Jewish, to, to Hebrews, right? And he's telling them that Jesus came to establish something that's better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. He came to establish the will of God, and what, what would that will do? Verse number 10, by that will, by the will of God, where, where Jesus came and he did the will of God in his body, he says, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And here we see Jesus, both perfect high priest and perfect sacrifice. Through the body of Jesus Christ, we have been sanctified once for all. And that point is going to be an important point for the writer of Hebrews as he argues that Jesus is better than the Old Testament, Old Testament sacrificial system because what Jesus did, he only needed to do once. He didn't have to do it over and over and over again. Jesus' sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. He says in verse 11 that every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. All right? And again, the writer of Hebrews is demanding that we, that we appreciate the Old Testament context right? of those priests that over and over and over again slaughtered thousands of animals that could never take away sin. And it says every priest stands daily at his service. Isn't it interesting that of all the, all the furniture in the tabernacle, seats weren't among them? Right? Because the priests were constantly standing and working, and, and it was never done. A priest could never, at the end of the day, go, oh, good, I won't have to offer any more sacrifices for Joe Schmo, because he, he's done. Right? Sacrifices would have to happen again and again and again, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There is a note of finality there. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, a single sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down because it was done. And Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. The work was over, and there doesn't need to be any ongoing sacrifice anymore because Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. And what Jesus did in verse 13 is wait from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering... He has perfected. There's that word again. Remember remember at the beginning of Hebrews 10, it said that, that the sacrifices could never make us perfect. What the law couldn't do, Jesus has done. It says that by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
And again, remember, I, I said we're going we're gonna to get to three responses to the priestly work of Christ. But we have to appreciate how careful the theological argument is that the writer of Hebrews is giving us. And this is one of those statements that so beautifully summarizes for us what it means to be a Christian. Because he says, by a single offering, Jesus has perfected, right, for all time. What, what Jesus did in his offering is make you perfect forever. That is a glorious truth. You aren't, you aren't partially saved if your faith is in Jesus Christ this morning. You, your sins aren't sort of gone and you're paying for the rest of them. You're, you're not trying to do the best you can and then hope for um, not too many years in purgatory before you need to finish your perfection. You have been perfected for all time. And then he adds, for those who are being sanctified. Isn't, isn't that our experience, brothers and sisters? We, we have been perfected for all time. And yet, right now, we are in the process of being sanctified, right? As, as we grow to hate our sin more and look more like Christ. This is the ongoing Christian experience. I am perfect, and yet I am being perfected all at the same time. And Jesus is the one who has done that. He also, the, the writer of Hebrews quotes scripture to also make this point. When he reminds us of, of the covenant um, that the Holy Spirit made. Isn't that interesting? He said that the Holy Spirit was the one who spoke um, Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds this sweet truth. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What did the Day of Atonement do for every Jewish person every year? It reminded them of their sins. It reminded them that another year has gone by where they have failed and they have fallen short of the standard. And, and yet what we have in Christ, what we have in Christ is that now our sins are never remembered, not by us, but who? God no longer remembers any of your sins or your lawless deeds. This is what we have in Christ. And so verse 18 tells us, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. If your sin has been fully dealt with, there's not any part remaining for you to pay. If you are perfected, then you don't need any more offerings. Unlike the Jewish sacrificial system where they had to continually offer another and another and another and another offering, Jesus is your offering once for all. And so you need, you need no more offering. You need no more sacrifices. What Jesus did on that cross those several thousand years ago was the last offering that ever needed to be paid for your sin and for my sin because Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so we're going to complete our study this morning uh, looking at just one sentence. It just so happens to go from verse 19 through 25, so it's not going to be the shortest sentence ever. Uh, But it is just one sentence. And in that one sentence, we're going to see three responses to the great high priestly work of Christ. And, and so we've had to do this, um, this kind of longer wind-up to, to get us to this point because we have to have fixed in our minds, the writer of Hebrews once fixed in your minds, how much better Jesus is than the Old Testament sacrificial system. He wants to have at the forefront of your mind the reality that, that Jesus paid for your sins once for all for all time. He wants you to have in your mind that you don't need any more sacrifices for sin because of how great Jesus is. So if that's what's in your mind, now you are ready to consider three responses 
to the high priestly work of Christ. What are those three responses? The writer of Hebrews will tell us that we should respond to Christ's high priestly work, number one, by drawing near to our God. Number two, holding fast to our faith. And number three, considering encouragement to our brothers and sisters. Right? These are the three responses, drawing near to our God, holding fast to our faith, and considering encouragement to our brothers and sisters. Let's, let's see uh, how Hebrews draws this out. Verse number 19 says, Therefore, brothers. And that word, therefore, by itself should cause us to look back in, in the chapter. But to make the point as crystal clear as possible, He's going to go on to say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then he's going to move on to these responses, drawing um, drawing near to God, holding fast to our faith, and encouraging one another. But notice even in, in verses 19 and 20 and 21, notice the, notice the theological reminder of, that drives our action this morning. Therefore, because of everything he said in, in um, chapter 10, and even before it, brothers, since, what do we, what do we have? What, what do we have because Jesus is a better high priest? What do we have because he doesn't need to keep offering himself a sacrifice any longer? We have confidence. What kind of confidence? You can have confidence, boldness. It's a word for freedom. You have freedom to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And again, he's, he's using that Old Testament language, the, the holy places, the places in the tabernacle, as well as the temple that only the priest could enter in. Now you can have freedom, you have access to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, right? This is the, the work that our high priest did. Because of his blood, you can have confidence to enter where God is. That was what was special about the holy places, right? The Ark of the Covenant was where God's presence was. And now you can go to God Because of the blood of Jesus. He is the new, verse 20 says, he is the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Again, he's using using Old Testament symbolism uh, to to remind us that, that just as the priest would enter through the curtain into the holy places, Jesus has allowed us to enter through his body to, to be near to God. That's what we have because Christ is our sacrifice and he is our high priest. So he says, Because we have confidence to enter the holy places. And verse 21 says, not only do we have confidence, but we also have a great priest over the house of God. That word great, same as high priest, right? Because we have a high priest over the house of God, because of all of that theological wind-up, right? Now we're finally ready to say, so what? Right? Now our heart should be in the right place to say, how should I respond to these amazing truths? Because I have confidence to enter um, into the holy place before God. Because I have a great high priest, now what? And these are the three great now what's in this passage. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider. Okay? The first one is, let us draw near. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. I think it can be really, really easy for us to take our privileges for granted. 
Don't you know that to be true in other parts of your life? There are, there are privileges we have that we just, we just take them totally for granted. We are used to things like our, our running water and our cars and our electricity and things that you probably don't spend a moment thinking about until you don't have them, all right? Uh, I went into the office this morning because I still needed to print out some things for today. And I don't ever think about whatever genius and miracle it is that you can be at a computer and you can push a button and it will somehow send a signal to a printer that will then spit out on a piece of paper all the things you told it to until this morning when it didn't work, right? And I clicked print and, and the printer just went... And I, so I clicked print again, and, and still nothing happened, right? And all of a sudden, something that I take for granted, the ability to just click print and have whatever's on my screen come out a piece of paper, I didn't have it anymore, right? We have a privilege, brothers and sisters, to draw near to God, and yet we're probably so accustomed to it that we haven't even taken the time to pause and consider what an amazing privilege it is. Think about how exclusive Old Testament worship was, right? First of all, God was the God of Israel. And, and although he had made a way for other people who were outside of Israel to, to become proselytes, God was the God of Israel. He was exclusively worshipped, the Jehovah God. He was the God of Israel. We're used to thinking that worship is inclusive, and, and, but in the Old Testament, you could only worship God at the tabernacle and at the temple. There was only one prescribed way of worshiping God, and it was a Jewish way. Not only was it exclusive to to Israel, but think about this, in both the tabernacle and in the temple, people, uh, normal, ordinary, everybody, people were were kept out in the courtyard. And they weren't allowed in the holy place, and they certainly weren't allowed in the most holy place. So think about that. People had to be kept out in the courtyard, and then the only people that could get further in were male relatives of Aaron. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? The, the, the people that could draw near to God had to be male, and they had to be related to Aaron. Otherwise, you weren't drawing near to the presence of God. And on top of that, as, as if that wasn't exclusive enough, think about the holiest of holies, the place where it says God dwelt, and there was only one male in all of the world who could enter into the presence of God in the holy of holies, and it was the high priest. And he could only do it one day a year. That is exclusive worship, and yet we take for granted that we can just draw near to God any old time we please because we're so used to the access we have to God. But brothers and sisters, the only reason you have that kind of access is because of Jesus, because he is a better priest. He is a better sacrifice, and that's why at any moment you can pray to God. At any moment you can draw close to him as you read his word because of what Jesus has done for us. Junior hires, do you realize that you have just as much access to God as the person who has been following him for 40 years? There's no, there's no limit of time. There's no exclusivity. Pastors don't have any, any closer in to God than anyone else. There is, there is a priesthood of every believer here. You all have access to God because of the work of Christ. And so what should we do because we have that access? We should draw near to God. We should take advantage of this access that we have. We should do it with a true heart, an undivided heart. It says, in full assurance of faith. You should come to God fully believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You can do that because of the work of Christ. You can do that because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. I don't think he's talking about baptism there. I think he's still using the Old Testament um, imagery. Um, what the priest would have to do in order to go into the tabernacle and then the temple, they would have to go through the ritual cleansings. But what we have is not cleansings of our, of our body, but of our conscience, right? And we have access to God that is, that is full and free. And so we should draw near to him. Remember I said that we're looking at three corporate responses to the high priestly work of God, though. Notice that this passage doesn't, um, doesn't just say you should. It's, it says it's, it's corporate, it's we. Notice, notice that it says let us draw near, right? This is a corporate response. And so as you think about drawing near, uh, let, let me ask you, are, are you drawing near in corporate worship to God? Are you taking advantage of what Jesus has given to you in his better sacrifice when we sing, are you giving your, your mind to the lyrics? Are you giving your voice to the words? Are you giving your emotions to the heart of what's in the song? Are, are you drawing near in song? Are you drawing near in prayer? When, when we pray corporately, is that a time when you just kind of check out and you think somebody over there up front is praying and, oh, they said amen, it's over? Or, or are you drawing near to God as you engage with prayers that are being prayed by us corporately? Right? As sermons are preached, are you drawing near to God? Are you, actively, are you actively saying, I want to be closer to God, and that's available to me in this corporate worship time as we hear God's word preached together? Are you drawing near to God corporately? In, in his word, in prayer, in song, in all we do corporately, are you drawing near to God? Why, why can you do this? Why can you draw near to God? Let's not forget. It's because of the work of our great high priest. Therefore, since we have confidence and since we have a high priest, let's draw near with a true heart. But it's not just drawing near. He also says, let us hold fast in verse 23. This is our second point. Our second response to the great high priestly work of Christ. The first was to draw near. The second is to hold fast. He says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. There's a command here to grip something that is valuable. And the confession of your hope, the, your, your proclamation that your hope is in Jesus Christ, that he is a better way, that he's where your trust is, that is something for us to hold on to, to cling to. Hold fast. We, we hold on to things that are valuable, right? We, we cling to them. And so this passage tells us that we should cling to our confession of Christ. I think it's possible that there are two dangers when we read a command like this. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And, and the first danger is that, is that we can think that no one ever doubts. Right? We can read this passage and we can go, why do I need to be told to hold fast to the confession of our faith? I mean, who doesn't do that? Um, of course I'm holding fast to the confession of my hope. And and we can just assume that no one ever doubts. And then when someone does doubt, we're just blown away. I, ah, I can't believe it. I never saw that coming. All of a sudden, this person that I never would have expected, they, they're expressing doubts about, about their Christianity or about the Bible. And, and we almost get bowled over by, oh, I can hardly believe this is happening. Because we act as if we don't need this command. Right? This command is for you this morning. You need to hold fast to the confession of your faith. 
This is something that is valuable, something that is not to be taken lightly. Your, the, the, the trust you have in Jesus this morning is something for you to grip tightly to. When we were back in, in Pennsylvania, uh, Kathy and I were driving past um, this, this part on a road on, on the way to her house, and she reminded me of something that happened um, many years ago. Uh, many years ago, while she was driving from my parents' house to her house, um, apparently she hadn't done that preparation work that we talked about beforehand. There was some snow on the windshield, and so she had to pull over and get some of the snow off. And so she took her glove off, uh, and she started to wipe away the, the snow from the windshield, and uh, she was wearing her engagement ring uh, at this point. But in the cold of the snow, uh, as uh, I don't know, her fingers were, 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 sh- were shrinking or whatever, and as she wiped the snow from the windshield, she did this, and her engagement ring went... And landed in the snow. And this was in, this was in the parking lot of a lumber yard, all right, is where she had pulled over. And now her engagement ring is sitting in the snow somewhere. Uh, and so she said, ah, oh, it's no big deal. It was a crummy engagement ring anyway. Um, he'll get me another one. Huh. No, it, that was something that was valuable, right? And so it was, everything goes on pause at that point. It's let's search, let's hunt. Let, I mean, she's digging through snow. She's, she's looking everywhere. Where could this ring have gone? Because it's something that's valuable that you want to hold on to. You don't just let things that are valuable go, right? The confession of your hope, brothers and sisters, is something that is valuable, something to be clung to, not, not something for us to take for granted or assume that we will always have. There's only one mark of a genuine Christian, and it's someone who has faith that endures until the end. And you haven't reached the end yet, and neither have I. So are you holding fast to the confession of your faith? I said there was two dangers. One, we can act like no one ever doubts. And yet, on the other hand, thanks to our culture in our day today, um, there are some, and they act like doubt is a virtue. There are some um, who would even say that they're within the world of of Christianity and evangelicalism that have begun to basically say that doubt is something that that we should really be be grateful for. And um, there are those who have written books like Humble Orthodoxy that say that um, really we just should never say we're certain about anything we believe because that's arrogant. Right? And so in the name of humility, we should just say um, that that we're not really sure what the Bible says. Right? and, and this wrong teaching has basically promoted doubt to being a virtue. And um, I read an article um, right before I went um, on, on uh, Christmas break that I thought really illustrated this um, remarkably well. Um, on, uh, on November 30th, uh, a pastor at a really famous church uh, called Mars Hill, not Mars Hill, Seattle, the, the other Mars Hill, uh, his name was Kent Dobson. Uh, he had followed Rob Bell there, and uh, he stepped down as the teaching pastor. All right, which, um, which happens, and it wouldn't be overly newsworthy, uh, except he, he opened his announcement about stepping down um, by reading the scriptural story about Paul going to Mars Hill. All right, and, and after he read that story about Paul going to Mars Hill, he began to describe how he originally went to Mars Hill Church because he was attracted um, to the fact that, that just like Paul at Mars Hill, you could hear kind of a traditional gospel message, but in relevant terms. And he said, I wanted to go somewhere. He specifically said this in his, in his talk. He said, I wanted to go to a cool church with cooler shoes than the traditional church down the road. So let's leave the traditional church behind. Let's go somewhere cooler. However, in his talk, he said, I, I not only began to question the packaging of the traditional church. He said, I also began to question the message of the church, the gospel. This is the, this is the lead pastor of multiple thousands of people announcing his resignation. 
And he, and he said, if you're really going to fully understand my evolution, then you'll have to read my memoirs, which no doubt he'll write, and no doubt many Christian people will buy, and it will be very successful if he follows in Rob Bell's steps. But um, this is how he summarized, if you can't wait for the memoirs and you want to hear the point uh, today. This is a quote, all right, from, from Kent Dobson. I have always been, and I'm still drawn to the very edges of religion and faith in God. I've said a few times that I don't even know if we know what we mean by God anymore. That's the edges of faith. That's the thing that pulls me. I'm not really drawn to the center. I'm not drawn to the orthodox or the mainstream or the status quo. I'm always wandering out to the edge and beyond. And, and the thing that is even more shocking about those statements is they weren't offered with any kind of apology. They were offered as validation for him stepping down and now pursuing the edges of his faith. And, and for them as a church, this wasn't a shocking moment. In fact, this was very much in keeping with the teaching that's been happening at Mars Hill for many years. That should be shocking to us, that, that you can have a lead pastor of thousands of people that says, I'm not even sure if we know what we mean by God anymore. Uh, and I've always been drawn to the edges of faith. Genuine Christianity and what you and I need to have as a response to our Christ is not an ambivalent faith. It's, it's not an, an unknowing, well, in the name of humility, we can't be certain. What we should have is a hold on our confession of faith that we don't let go. This is not arrogance. This is trust in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Why should you hold fast to the confession of your faith? Because he is faithful who promised. That's why you should hold tightly to your faith. Because you have a great high priest. You have confidence to enter God. Why would you let that go? That's something to hold on to. It's valuable. So are you treasuring the confession of faith you have in your wonderful Christ? There is one final response we see in this passage to the great priestly work of Jesus Christ, and that's considering how to encourage our brothers and sisters. Notice verse 24. We've already been told to to draw near because of the work of Christ. We've been told to hold fast to our faith because of the work of Christ. And now in verse 24, we're encouraged to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's interesting the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, let us stir up one another to love and good works. Did you notice that? That's not what it says. What does it say? It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We we are supposed to stir each other up to love and good works. But the specific command here, the specific response to the work of Christ is that we should deliberately, intentionally, consider, stop, and think of how you can stir up other believers to love and good works. And so that's our command for this morning. Are we considering, are we thoughtfully, intentionally, mentally planning on how we can stir others to love and good works? He says, when it says how to stir up one another to love and good works, that's another unusual word. Um, it's usually used in a negative sense, that word of, that word of stir up. Um, it's the same word that, that is used when um, whenever um, Paul and Barnabas and Silas, there was that big dispute they have, and, and, and they split up. They stirred each other up, right? They had a big argument. Um, but in this case, the word is not used negatively. It's used positively. Uh, the idea of provoking, 
right? If you, if you provoke somebody, normally that kind of has a negative connotation, like you made me mad, right? I mean, in this case, it's not provoking in order to be mad. It says we're supposed to consider, to think, how can we, how can we provoke, how can we stir each other up to what? To love and good works, right? What we ought to be doing for one another is thinking about how we can encourage each other to love and to do good works, right? Two great marks of genuine Christianity. Do you have love for others, and are you doing good works, right? I hope it doesn't even uh, need to be clarified because we've spent all this time saying that Jesus is the better sacrifice and Jesus is the only sacrifice, but obviously these good works are not about saving you, right? Jesus is the only one who saves you, but, but we should stir each other up to love and good works because of what Jesus has done, right? So it says we should consider, we should think, we should plan on how we can stir each other up to love and good works. Negatively, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. All right? So on the negative side, you're not going to be able to stir each other up to love and good works if you neglect to meet together. Right? That word neglect is the same word for abandonment. Right? If you desert gathering together with other Christian people, you're not going to be able to stir them up to love and good works. Right? So, negatively, let's not neglect to meet together. And then he says, as is the habit of some. Right? Apparently, um, already in the, the first century, when the writer of Hebrews wrote, there were people who already were in the habit of not gathering together with other Christian people. And that habit, unfortunately, has continued all the way up until today, right? Um, where some are in the habit of not, of not meeting together. Uh, and this morning, you're all, you're all breathing a deep sigh of relief that, oh, I came this morning. And, uh, and so now I'm just preaching to the choir because you're all here, right? Uh, this, would, this would have been the wrong message to skip um, if you listen to it later. Uh, no, uh, there's, there's obviously plenty of fine reasons to not be here on, on, on a Sunday. There is not a fine reason for abandoning the gathering of Christian people, right? There's no such thing as a good reason to neglect, to abandon gathering together. And, and especially in our day when we have so many other things that we can be doing, and there's so much that crowds in, even specifically on a Sunday for our, for our corporate worship, that I think we do need to hear this admonition. We need to not neglect to meet together. Right? This, is not a, this is not a time for us to legalistically drop a list of this is how many Sundays you're allowed to miss and how many you're not allowed to miss. Right? I just want to appeal to you. This verse says, don't neglect meeting together. So consider, are you in the habit of gathering or are you in the habit of not gathering? Because Jesus did a great high priestly work for you and out of the overflow of your response to him, then you should want to stir up others to love and good works and you can't do that unless you're with others, right? It, it just, it works together, all right? So he says negatively, not neglecting to meet together, but positively encouraging one another. How can you stir up others to love and good works? Well, I wouldn't recommend um, getting your Bible and beating them over the head with it. Right? I wouldn't recommend putting guilt trips on people and saying, um, well, it's too bad you weren't there on Sunday because we heard this message that talked about people who weren't there. Uh, no, what you need to do is, is be encouraging, right? It says, it says that we should be encouraging one another. You know how it is when, when someone winsomely and, and carefully encourages you to do something that's right as opposed to kind of pigeonholing you and you feel like, man, they, they really got my number, right? Uh, we need to encourage one another to love and good works. So let's, let's 
think about how we can stir each other up. And let's not neglect to meet together, but let's encourage one another. And notice it says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, that day is capitalized in my Bible um, because it's referring to the great day of the return of Jesus Christ, right? There is a day coming, uh, and we ought to be able to see that it's drawing near. If you have any sense at all that Jesus' return is getting closer, then you should be more motivated to encourage others, not less, right? If Jesus' return is getting closer and closer and closer, then what you ought to do is consider how to stir up others to love and good works and don't neglect to meet together, but instead encourage one another. And all the more as you see that day coming. All right? Um, I've already, we've already mentioned um, a, a bit of an emphasis on, on small groups, and uh, I just want to say one particular thing that is a application from this passage. When it says, let us consider how to stir up one another, um, that's the thinking part. Um, this is part of what has led me and us as a, as a leadership team to think we need to think about ways that as a church we are pursuing encouraging each other to love and good works, right? Because we're supposed to think it through. And part of the way that we can encourage one another is to have something like small groups, right? It is a way for us formally, officially to get together in order to encourage each other. Right? And that's why we're committed to it. We think this is a valid application of the concept of thinking of how we can stir each other up to love and good works. There are plenty of other applications that I hope that you are already stopping to think about. Have you considered how you are stirring up other Christians to love and good works? It might be for you that you really do need, um, and I, I say this um, without my tongue in my cheek, after the service, you really need to, need to go outside and, and put your name on a piece of paper that says, I'm interested in a small group, uh, because you realize you have not been stirring up others to love and good works, right? Um, you might need to stop and say, how am I stirring up others to love and good works? Ha- have you planned that, that this week you're going to take so-and-so out for coffee because you know that they need encouraged? right? Uh, Have you thought, I need to consider how to stir up other people to love and good works, and so I need to invite this family over to to my house. I I think Don was right on on the video. There's something about being in each other's homes that does what sitting here in a little theater can never accomplish. Are you planning for it, right? Are you considering how you're stirring up others to love and good works? Uh, Moms, have you thought about having a play date with another mom so that you can encourage one another, right? Are you considering how you're doing it? Are Are you thinking it through? Because that's what this passage is calling us to do. Are you considering how to stir each other up to love and good works? All right? Why? Why would we consider how to encourage others? And I want to remind you that that this response also comes because of how we appreciate Jesus Christ as our great high priest. Right? Because he's better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. Because he's made a way for you to come to God. Because you have confidence to enter before God. Because you have a high priest, therefore you should want to consider how to encourage others. Why, why is that? Well, the passage is going to go on to say, and we're not going to keep going in the passage, but the passage is going to go on to say that there is real danger for us in sinning. If we continue in unbroken sin, then we live in serious danger of being outside of the faith. And so we need to be with other people who will encourage us and challenge us. Hebrews 10 will transition into Hebrews 11 and it'll present a whole hall of heroes of faith, right, who believed and believed until the end. But that happens for us together, not in isolation, right? So because Jesus um, is... The, the high priest over a household, because 
He is the one who is not just over individuals. He's over the household of faith. Because he's our great high priest, we will also value the household that he is over. We'll value the holiness that he's trying to create in us, right? Jesus didn't die so that you could continue in unbroken sin, right? He designed for you to become more and more holy. And so we need help. We need to help each other in that process of becoming more and more holy, right? So he's our great high priest, and he's over a household, and we're a part of that whole household. Belonging to Jesus means belonging to other believers. And, and, and so even this response um, is an application of everything that's come in Hebrews 10 and earlier. There are these three great responses in, in Hebrews 10 to the high priestly work of Christ. Number one, you should draw near to God. And number two, you should hold fast to your confession of faith. And number three, you should consider how you can stir up others to love and to good works.